All right, well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, I trust that you did. I know that some of our college students are probably on their way back or maybe at home uh, at their home churches this morning, so we'll be sure to, to think of them and to pray for them. Uh, we had a good Thanksgiving. Thanks for asking. It was, it was fun to be together with family and uh, to do all the things that Thanksgiving requires as you get older and start to have children. So uh, you have young people, you have something to look forward to. If you needed permission, now it's a safe time to go ahead and put up your Christmas tree and listen to Christmas music. So uh, hot take, I know, but um, so there you go. If you're new here, my name's Stephen. Uh, I've got the privilege of serving as one of our elders, and uh, we've been walking verse by verse uh, through this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. And we saw, and over the course of the last of, of this semester, we've seen this, this like these two halves of this letter that were written. One was re- the first three chapters really focused on on who we are because of Jesus. What's been declared over us as Christians? What we would say doctrine or theology. And the second half being real practical. Okay, because of what is now true of us in Christ, this is then how we should live. And so a lot of us, if you've been around, you know that we finished with verse 20 of chapter 6 last week. And you're like, huh. So all we have left is the final greeting. And I don't want us to breeze past it, which is why we separated it from uh, last week's message. So most of the commentaries will clump this in. And we just, we generally will breeze past this rich text of a benediction. And so today we're going to slow down and, and to press into Paul's final greetings to his people, to the church that he planted in Ephesus. And so what I want to remind us of, though, are these key doctrines that were part of the beginning of this letter. The doctrine of Christology, which is what we believe about who Jesus is. Okay, that's a, Christology is a fancy word to say the, the definition that you give of who Jesus is. That is your Christology. The doctrine of soteriology is what do you, what do you mean when you say salvation? Okay, the soteriology is the study of salvation. We have the doctor of ecclesiology, which is the church, the body of Christ, how she should act in the world, right? And then we have this doctrine, really robust doctrine, especially in chapters four, five, and six of sanctification. is our daily growth and walk with Jesus. And so these core doctrines now have, have been produced in Paul's writings, and, and then he, sp- he spends time with the doctrine, and then with the right living. And so... I, for us, as we kind of dive into these last few verses, is this idea that our doctrine matters only insofar as we're able to apply it to our lives. This was the point of the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's great to know a lot about God, but unless you are living for God, according to his purposes in the world, what you know about him hasn't truly impacted and transformed your life. You're a student, not a practitioner. And Christians haven't been called to be students only. We've been called to study, yes, but we've been called to practice the ways of Jesus in the world. And so if I could give a summary real quick, a summary of Ephesians, it would be this. That the gospel is the good news that God, who is rich in mercy, do you remember this? Okay. That God, who is rich in mercy, has saved us by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, so now we should live in a way that glorifies him. Okay? The gospel is the good news that God, who is rich in mercy, amen, has saved us by grace through faith in Christ alone. So now we should live in a way that glorifies him. Over the last few weeks, as we've talked a lot about this, the, how we Im- 
apply this text to our lives, we've talked about it being a, a book of prayer, right? I mean, Paul's exhorting the people in Ephesus to live according to Christ's purposes and according to the way of Jesus. But he's doing it in the kind of intermingled into this really robust prayer. And so while this is a, a prayer letter, it's also a battle plan. It is how we fight sin in our own lives and how we fight this sin in the world around us. And so I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24, as we close out our series in Ephesians, I trust that it has been rich. You know, it's interesting, our last sermon series was on Exodus, and we spent almost two years in the book of uh, Exodus, and now we're 12 weeks into Ephesians, and we're moving on. So next week, we will start Advent. When we come back from uh, New Year's, we will dive into uh, Philippians. So for those of you who are curious where we're headed next, that's where we'll be. We'll spend a couple weeks in Acts getting ready for that. But let's read now uh, from the final verses of Ephesians chapter 6. This is verse 21. So that, and just to keep this in perspective, usually when we see so that, we're looking ahead. This so that is pointing to what's coming, okay? So don't, don't think so that or therefore I need to go look up. You actually need to look at the end of this sentence to understand what so that means, okay? So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything, okay? So that's the so that, okay? Ty, we're gonna call him Ty, okay? You heard Andrew say Tychicus, if you listen to the ESV app, it's Tychicus, okay? And we know that's the official word of the Lord. So um, this is why we're going to call him Ty for the rest of the morning, okay? Just to prevent any confusion here. But this is the so that, okay? Because Ty now, your beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything so that you may know how I'm doing, okay? So that's, that's why we're here. Now listen to verse 22. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Okay, so something was going on in the church in Ephesus. They needed an encouragement. They needed an exhortation in the doctrines that had built the church. They needed an exhortation in righteous living. Listen to verse 23. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What a powerful closing statement. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful uh, for this letter. We're thankful for the impact that it's had on this little church in Lumpkin County. And we pray that it would um, transform not just our minds, but it would transform our hearts and our hands and our feet. God, we want to be a people who are used by you for your purposes in the world. We want to see people come to know Jesus because of you gathering us here in this season and in this place. We pray now for our brothers and sisters who have gone home uh, for a holiday. God, we pray that their time uh, with their family has been rich and, um, and restful. And as they come back, we pray that you would protect them as they travel. We're thankful uh, to gather this morning, and we think of our brothers and sisters around the world who are gathering under different circumstances today, uh, maybe with uh, still thanksgiving in their hearts, uh, but their surroundings may look a little different than ours today. So we, we are thankful for their stories, and the gospel uh, reaches to the ends of the earth. So we pray now that you would use this text uh, to help us to look more like Jesus every day. Uh, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. So what I want you to do is, in your Bible, go ahead, I'm going to give you a heads up. We're going to go to Revelation. Hello. Um, chapter 2. 
okay? Uh, we had, we've been hinting at this over the course of the last uh, maybe month or so, and certainly at the beginning in the introduction as we dove into uh, Ephesians, um, that Jesus has something to say to the Ephesian church as well. And so we, we will use that this morning. So uh, Revelation chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible on the end of each row. You can grab that. Um, Revelation chapter 2, I think, is on page 965. So as you're getting this, uh, getting there, I, I kind of want to set up who, what has happened here in Ephesians chapter 6, okay? And we'll do this briefly because I want to spend time in, in Revelation chapter 2. But Ty, our boy, uh, was a faithful partner of Paul. Okay, this is someone we see in other parts of scripture, always in this very brief, okay, he, was, he wasn't the big hammer like Paul was, but he was a nail that was used often, okay, and he was a faithful steward, he was a friend to Paul, he was someone who cared deeply for Paul, and what's beautiful about when we see Ty showing up in other places is Paul cared deeply for him as well. And so as Paul's, uh, the reality of Paul's circumstances have gotten worse, right? He's in pretty tough shape now. We, we talked about he's in prison writing this letter. He's, he's literally chained to another human being, which is, just sounds horrible. Uh, but it doesn't look good. He's, he's about to stand trial uh, for the crime of being a bearer of the gospel in a place that didn't want it, okay? And so stuff's not looking real good for Paul. And yet here is Tychicus a faithful ministry partner of Paul, who's willing to go back to the church, who needs to be encouraged for Paul because he can't go. So here's just real briefly, we all need somebody like this. We all need someone who's going to be willing to say, hey, you know what, I know you can't do this. I want to do this for you. You've got other things going on. I want to be a partner to you. Just look around. Your partner is sitting in this room right now. Okay, we don't, we don't talk a lot about like how we function as Christians in the world, but we function together. There is no such thing as a Christian who does everything by himself, okay? You would be a fool, I would be a fool to think, well, I just stand up here every week with the Bible and I'm just going to read it to you and, and give you some uh, fun tidbits. I don't do this by myself. I'm dependent on our elders. I'm dependent on our staff. I'm dependent on you, right? As we get feedback of like, hey, that was a really terrible sermon. I appreciate that. And I appreciate how frequently you send me those emails, but we don't do it together. We're meant to walk. We're meant to fight together. There's a, an old uh, saying of where if a, if a nail on a horse's horseshoe goes bad in battle, you will lose the war, right? So that's how important each one of us are to the body of Christ, right? If the nail goes bad, the horseshoe goes bad. If the horseshoe goes bad, the horse goes down. If the horse goes down, the soldier goes down, and then you lose the war. Okay, so that's how important each one of us are into what God is doing in the world. And Paul has a lot to say in these four verses. Basically, he takes all of Ephesians and he sums it up real tight and puts a bow on it. And he sends this benediction to the church. This benediction includes kind of four wishes, if you will, that Paul has for this church. The first being peace. This is a place, if you know anything about where Ephesus is on the global map, a place that hasn't experienced much peace since this church was planted. Battles and wars and conflict constantly, okay? Peace, love, faith, and finally, there's grace. And so what I hope that we will see is as we see these rhythms that Paul is writing and we see them woven throughout this entire letter, We'll certainly see them in Philippians. We'll definitely see them in Colossians when we get there uh, later in 24. But these themes are important to Paul because they're at the very foundation of what it means to be the church. So can we be a church apart from peace? No, 
Can we be a church apart from love for our neighbor? No. Can we be a church apart from faith or apart from extending grace out into the world? No, we can't. So let's now read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is Jesus speaking. Uh, We know that for a couple of reasons. The primary reason is it is in red in your Bible, okay? So uh, Revelation chapter 2, and I will do my best. So typically, we go verse by verse through a book for a a season, okay? We're not going to do that here. So I ask for a little bit of patience as we do this. I'm going to dive and kind of break these seven verses up the best that I can with the amounts of time that we have, okay? And your boy's been going a little long lately. I'm going to try not to do that uh, today. All right, you can thank me later. All right, no promises though, okay? So Revelation chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Stop. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? To hear those words, I hope one day we'll stand before Jesus and he will say these things are true of us. The Branch Church here in Dahlonega, Georgia, that we have been patiently enduring the test of the world. We've been calling out false prophets. We've been fighting for gospel clarity and gospel persistence in the world. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, verse 5, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, okay, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So kids, if you're in the room and you got a sheet, your first point there is that we are the light of the world. We talked about this a few weeks ago and I threatened to sing this little light of mine. I'm not gonna do that again today, okay? But uh, you do not wanna hear me sing, okay? I promise. It's one of the gifts that God has given me, the inability to sing ever in front of people. But we are the light of the world. So the threat here to this Ephesian church is that Christ is going to come and take their lampstand away because they have lost their first love. So Jesus is pleased with their obedience, right? This is what he says in the first three verses here. He's pleased with their obedience, but he's jealous for their hearts. He's jealous for their hearts that maintain a devoted love for him. And that love fuels their good works. So what does it mean to have lost their first love? Well, there's a lot of debate around what that first love might be. Is it, is it love for Christ? Or is it love for one another? And I would argue it's probably both. Because where there is an absence of one of those, there is an absence of both of those. Right? This is, the, this is the Christian ethic of love. To love someone else, you have to love Jesus. You don't know true love unless you know the love of Christ. So to love your neighbor means that you've first been loved by someone else who loves you more than you could ever love them. Which is, in this instance, this is Jesus. Jesus has loved us to the point of dying a brutal death on a cross. He's resurrected and what is a greater form of love, 
And now we are able to love others because that love has been given to us. So we see this rhythm in Revelation chapter 2, right? Jesus, he states what is true. What is true of the church in Ephesus? They're, do, they're busy. They're doing a lot, okay? He states what is true. They're enduring. They're persevering. They're toiling. They're calling out heresy. They're fighting. But they've started to grow weary. The second thing he does is he commends what they're doing right. So he states what is true. He commends what they're doing right. Then he exhorts what they're lacking. This is verse 4, right? In Ephesians, we set up that three-letter word, but. You were dead in your trespasses, but God who is rich in mercy. This is the but that you don't want, okay? This is the but that you don't want. But I have this against you. So he exhorts what they're lacking. And then in verse 5, what does he do? He doesn't stay there long. He pivots in verse 5, and then he gives them a plan, right? What is the word that we see over and over and over again throughout the rest of this passage? Just repent. Remember, repent. So every week when we go to the table, what are we asking you to do? We're asking you to remember, right? Because we're quick to forget the goodness that God has given us through Christ in our salvation. We forget that we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, every single moment of every single day. And so we go to the table, Lord, would you help me remember that this salvation that I proclaim was a gift from you and you alone. I did nothing to earn it. So what has happened in Ephesus? They're starting to work. Legalism's creeping in. Now they've lost their first love, right? Their sound doctrine. They know a lot about Jesus. They know a lot about the Bible. They could quote all of Deuteronomy. Good for you. And yet they'd lost their first love. They were no longer doing the work of Jesus in the world. They've either forgotten that their affections are supposed to be drawn to Jesus. If our doctrine doesn't lead us to worship, it's not any good. So our theology, right, what we do with our soteriology, our ecclesiology, our sanctification, what we believe about how we grow in likeness, what we do with those things should draw our hearts and affections towards Jesus in worship. So if we're not doing those, all we're doing is filling our heads up with knowledge that's not ever going to do anything for anyone else, certainly not going to do anything for us. And so as the more we learn about Jesus, the more our affections should be turned to him. That's what they're writing here. So let's go back. We're going to break this down quickly, okay? Verse 1. All right, to the angel of the church, <clears throat> sorry, in Ephesus, write, these words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, without doing a whole eschatology thing, I'll give you some quick definitions here in a second, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, okay? So what do we see here? We see that Christ protects his church because he cares and because he's present. Put that in perspective to the branch church. He cares and he's present. When we gather together, one of the promises Let's go back to Exodus. One of the promises that we have given, were given in the scripture is that wherever two or more are gathered, there I'm going to be. That's true today. It's true tomorrow. It's true 100 years from now. It's true whoever's in the White House. It's true whoever gets voted into whatever office you're worried about. It's true no matter what. There is no circumstance that will say when, when Christians gather together, the presence of Christ won't be there. There's no threat of violence. There's no threat of war. There's no, there is nothing that can get in the way of that. Hello. So when we gather together, Christ is with us. He cares and he is present. So what are the seven stars? The seven stars are the angels that are tasked with guarding and protecting these seven churches, okay? The seven lampstands are the seven churches. I'm not gonna lay out the seven churches. You can go just flip through in the next page, or page and a half and you can see the seven churches that Jesus is writing to or speaking to, being addressed. But he's present and he is in control. I find great comfort in that. 
okay? This isn't my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not your church, okay? Whether you're a member of this church or you're just here for a season, it's not our church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It is his and his alone, and he is here and he is in control. So that's a good thing, right? We would all say that. Every church that's been purchased with the blood of Jesus is dear to him. Every single church, including the church that has lost their first love. This is a love letter from Jesus Christ himself to the church in Ephesus. Okay? Let's look at verses 2 and 3. I'll read them again. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown Weary. So the church in Ephesus is being commended for their perseverance and their discernment. So they're doing hard work. Mission in the world is hard. It takes initiative, it takes confidence, and it takes a ton of courage to go talk to your neighbor about the gospel. Would you agree with that? You can't go, well, hey, excuse me, um, I just was wondering if maybe if you, I could have a moment to talk to you about, uh, if you were going to die tonight. You know, that's not what we're talking about. Confident mission takes a lot of courage. And these people had courage. They were fighting against the idols. If you remember, let's go back all the way to the beginning of this. The idols of the the seventh wonder of the world was in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis. So all of these idols, all these Greco-Roman gods, all of the, everyone, everyone. This is like sitting in a class where everyone has a viewpoint different than yours. But now it's your whole community, okay? This church stood out like a sore thumb because they were the anti-culture to everything else that was going, or counterculture is probably better. They were counterculture to everything that was going on in Ephesus. They were commended for their perseverance and their discernment. They'd removed or disciplined Christians who'd gone astray by participating in evil. It's church discipline. It's a loving thing, okay? We protect the body where heresy comes in. Guess what? We're going to fight it. That's going to be true of this church. It's going to be true of other churches. Their discernment had rooted out the false teachers of their time. Praise God for that. I think what we need is we need more churches who are courageous to stand up against people who are saying, hey, this is the word of Jesus when it's not. Right? Generally, okay, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, so forgive me. A lot of times we will come to church, and I, I will do this, okay, and I'm going to look at the person up front as the person of primary authority. Okay? Whatever he says, that's what I'm going to believe. And I would just put this out there for you because you come to this church and I'm up here a lot. You better check every single thing all of the time. Every single thing all of the time. Because a lot of people will take this little thing and they'll put a Bible up and say, hey, this is what the Word of God said. And they'll step away from it. And all of a sudden, the conviction that you feel isn't a conviction of the Spirit. It's the conviction of a narcissist with a microphone. I know that's a hot take, so I'm sorry. But it's a re- this, is, this is real Life, and this is what was happening in Ephesus. So these, these people, they're characterized as an enduring church, fighting against these cultural idols. But doctrine and right living can't be separated. At some point, there was a divorce in the church in Ephesus. The doctrine and their practice had been split, and something was happening. So we must endure and not grow weary in the face of hostility, cultural pressure, or false gospels. All right, let's look at verse 4. All is not well in this church, but 
I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Matthew chapter 24 says this. This is verses 9 through 14, kind of like part of 9, and then the rest is down through verse 14. So if you want to make a note, I don't think it's on the screen. But he says, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is Jesus talking. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11 says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will it be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Listen to that, verse 13 and 14. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed... Not might be. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. So what is John referring to? Is it a failure to love God or a failure to one another? I think this is exactly what's happening here in Revelation chapter 2. We said it's both. It is both. We are called to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay? And to love our neighbor, neighbors as ourselves. This is how we show the world the light of Christ. This is, our, our lampstand is the love of Jesus on display in our lives for other people. That is our lampstand. Do not cover it with a basket. Back to Matthew chapter five. We put lights, we light lights to illuminate a room, to rid ourselves of darkness. That's why we gather together week after week. Just keep, hey, you good? Right? We keep those lights burning. Jesus wants our obedience. Yes, he does. But he also wants our affection. Okay? True orthodoxy, true and right doctrine is always a few things. It's always warm, it's always loving, and it's always generous in spirit. When, it, when our doctrine is harsh or unloving, we need to go back to work. We have more to do because our walking with Jesus is to love one another. So kids, your second point is that our first love is Jesus. We can only, you can only love your parents well when you're following and you love Jesus. And parents, that goes in reverse. You can only love your children well when you're following and love Jesus well. Okay? Let's keep going. Verses five and set through seven. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And if you like to write, maybe just circle. Every time you see the word repent, circle it. We don't talk a lot about repentance, um, and maybe we should do that more, but remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. These are powerful words which I also hate. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And we'll stop there. We'll pick up at the end of verse seven here in a minute. The, the plan that Jesus is putting in place is to repent, to remember, to repent, and then to do what you did at first. So when we come together, that's what we're going to do. We're gonna remember, we're gonna repent, and we're gonna go out into the world to do the work of Jesus for the gospel, for the kingdom. We're gonna to go to the ends of the earth. So, how do we conquer? Bible has a lot to say about conquering. The word conquer is actually where we get the word uh, Nike. 
It's kind of a weird thing. It's, it's Nikkei, Nikkei, right? It's where we get the word Nike, which means victor, okay? But this word conquer comes up over and over and over again throughout Scripture, okay? Christ is ultimately, Christ is the victor who conquered death, and he conquered sin and Satan on the cross. And so as soon as we take our victory apart from that victory, we're holding on to something that's fleeting, okay? Something that will leave us stranded and worried or working legalism, right? But we're recipients of that victory. And now more than, we're more than conquerors through Christ. This is, this is directly out of the book of Romans, the letter of Romans. We are now more than conquerors because Jesus is the ultimate conqueror, right? So now when I go to war with sin in my life, I can proclaim it as dead. You no longer have rule and reign here. Same for you. You are now conquerors. You're victors over sin, death, and Satan because of the work of Jesus. So what? So why take us to Revelation 2 as we close out this letter to the Ephesian church? Because I think it's important. I think it's important. Do you know where Ephesus is today? So Ephesus is on the western part of Turkey, okay, geographically, all right? I think uh, from a Ecclesiologically, I'll have more to say in just a second, but on a, on a map, it's on the western part of Turkey. We've got to remember that Ephesus was a vibrant city. It was affluent. A lot of people, it was like New York. People wanted to live there. It was, it was busy. It was a port city. So trade was important. They were on the water. And over the course of time, that port, those harbors, got silted up. And what was this vibrant city now is only seen as a place of ruins, even today. Google it. And all you will see are ancient ruins. Less than 1% of the population in this little town that's now uh, called something not Ephesus. Uh, Selkuk? I don't know how you say it. It's a good guess, though. Less than 1% of the population is Christian. 99% Muslim. The church in Ephesus is gone. It's gone. It's not there. The port silted up. Trade was gone. And people left. And now there's nothing left in this place but ruins and tyranny. So why, why are you telling us that? Is that going to happen here? I don't think so. It could, though. If we're not persistent, if we don't endure, if we don't persevere. When stuff gets hard in the world, we like to, Christians love to retreat. Okay? We love to retreat. We saw this, we saw this in the 80s and 90s. When culture started shifting, MTV came on the screens, and what do we, all of a sudden we saw, <laughs> you, see, you know what I'm talking about, right? And all of a sudden, as culture shifted, what did the church do? We pulled out. We started going, doing camps and all kinds of stuff, and we were all over the place, but you know where we weren't? We weren't engaged at the center anymore. And it wasn't just the 80s and 90s. This has been happening for hundreds of years. The church of Jesus is supposed to be the center of community. And so here's the, here's the ask. I want us to be a church that's willing to fight at the front line, not from the back. Let's be a church that's willing to go to the edge, to the fringe, to the marginalized, for the people who need to hear the gospel. And I'm not scared of what they look like. I'm not scared of the way they speak. But I'm confident and courageous in what Christ has done, who he's built in this church to go and bring the gospel to those who need to hear it. Because if we don't go, nobody will go. And all of a sudden our ports will be silted up 
and we'll be known for nothing but our ruins. It's an eye-opening thing, seriously. I think I, I would encourage you, Google Ephesus today and just look at the photos that come up. May that never be true of this church or the church as a whole in this country. So in conclusion, Christians that endure and labor are Christians who patiently wait for the return of Christ. We can be patient as we work in the world because of our hope that Christ will come back and make all things new. Ultimately, that's what Paul is doing in this letter. He's like, okay, hey, listen, guys, I want you to take your doctrine, and I want you to keep working, because if you stop working, Christ is going to come, and he's going to remove your lamp. It's almost like Paul's giving them a warning in this letter. And I think the warning is still true for us today, that our doctrine and our right living must be together. They're married as one. That is what life with Christ looks like. So these four things, these four rhythms of peace, love, faith, and grace, where do you see those today? Where do you see those in your life? Where do you see those in this church? And I would encourage you to speak those to one another. I want to close this just by reading this benediction one more time. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That is who we are. So what does this look like in light of this letter? It looks like guarding our tongues. It looks like protecting our purity. It looks like honoring our spouses. It looks like obeying our parents and standing against the devil. This is what it looks like to love Jesus. And the God who blesses us in Christ Jesus is a God who's worthy to be loved and a God who's worthy to be worshipped. And the last promise that we have in this letter was the first promise that we received in this letter is that God provides everything we need through Christ. Therefore, we should live worthy of that magnificent gift. I hope this letter has been... Um, Enriching. It certainly has been powerful. Like coming out of Exodus, it's been fun to like dive into one of these prison epistles. And we're going to spend the next year going through a few of the other ones. But I hope that the, the truth and the beauty of this letter resonates not just in our hearts individually, but in, as our, in our heart as a community, in our heart as a church. Because it's one thing for us to have a pioneer among us. It's something totally different if we go to war together. And so that's what I'm praying now for us, is that we will take these we will live with sound doctrine and right living. Let's pray now as we go to take communion at the tables. Father, we are grateful uh, just for your uh, sovereignty in our lives. Thankful for uh, just the power uh, of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, thankful for the power of Jesus' words to Ephesus. So here's what our prayer today, God, is that there would be a resurrection of the local church in this little small town in Turkey, that the gospel would reach the 99%. We know that you care for them deeply. And so maybe even as we have studied this letter, would, would you spark something in our body to participate in the kingdomness, kingdom-mindedness of the gospel reaching a place like Western Turkey? So Father, we pray uh, for the Christians who are there, that you would give them the encouragement that Paul is giving this church, that you would uh, encourage them in the gospel, that you would give them the courage to bring the gospel to their neighbors. 
So Father, I pray for our body that you would continue to give us a confidence uh, to proclaim boldly, to live rightly in the world. And most importantly, God, I pray that you would help us to look more like Jesus every single day. So now as we worship and respond, I pray that you would help us to remember and repent and turn to you as the only God who is worthy of our praise and worthy of our song. So we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.